Habakkuk 1, 1 through 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They, flee, they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is, in, whose might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity Church this morning. And I just want to remind you of those words that we just sang. Behold the empty tomb, alleluia, God be praised, he is risen from the grave. And uh, part of what we just sang is that you can be free from the sin and temptation and from the condemnation of one day, judgment that will come. So praise God that we can be free. Welcome again to Hotel Sofitel. Congratulations on making it here. But a special congratulations to Seifu Abdiwak. Anybody know who that is? Nobody knows who that is. Tomorrow you will. Who said it? Yeah, he won the marathon today. Anybody here, raise your hand if you've ever run a mile in less than 10 minutes. Raise your hand real quick. Come on, most of you. How about less than nine minutes? Eight minutes, seven minutes, six minutes? Five minutes. So he ran the marathon in, uh, the first half of the marathon, he ran in one hour and two minutes. And then he finished the whole marathon in two hours and six minutes and 29 seconds, which is a speed of like 12.47 miles per hour. No, no lie. And it's um, four it's, it's a mile, it's sub five minute mile. So each mile, the average mile is four minutes and 49 seconds for 26.2. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? He's from Ethiopia. The second, uh, the, the, the person who took second is actually from the United States of America, but he couldn't quite do it quite as fast um, as uh, Seifu. So congratulations to Seifu. We're going to be starting a, a new uh, series this morning in the book of Habakkuk, as you just heard from Hannah as she read the scriptures. And uh, the idea of, of the series is really a cry for renewal, which is there on the screen. 
And uh, if you think about the, the, the country and the time of life that our country is in, if you think of the challenges of our city, if you think of your own challenges, of your own heart, having a sense of renewal, a kind of freshness from God, a sense of God's presence one more time could be powerful for each of us. So over the next few weeks, we'll be thinking about this idea of renewal. There's an article in the New Yorker recently that um, it was actually called Our, Our Corporate COVID Midlife Crisis. And the idea was is that in a midlife crisis, I've never had one, but I've heard in a midlife crisis, what happens is you start to like reconsider everything about your life. Who am I? Where do I live? What do I really value? And there's this little phrase that came in this article that was called our moment of collective reconsideration. That part of what's happening across our country and really across the world is people are thinking about, man, should I actually live where I live anymore? Should I actually hang out with the people that I hang out with right now? Should I actually look for a different job right now? It's a moment where people across the country and across the world are really starting to think about, is the direction of my life the way that I I really want it to go? And some of it is related to... uh, some of the things that happened in the last year as it relates to injustice, there's been like this, I've said this before, but it's been almost like this uprooting in our country where people are sort of pulling up their roots and thinking about life in a very different way. The passage that we're going to look at is a very uh, poignant and painful moment of individual re- reconsideration for the prophet Habakkuk. And what he's doing is he's almost, it almost seems as if he is throwing out his faith because of the apparent absence of God in the world. And he's asking a bunch of questions, but I invite you to look at the text with me. And part of what I want to challenge you to today is to learn to pray through the moments of angst, the moments of apparent absence of God to pray through the pain. What, what Habakkuk does here is, instead, one of the things that we do when, we're, when we encounter trials and pain is it's easy to, to kind of curl up in a ball and get into a fetal position or to pull away from people, to, to not actually share what's going on in our lives. And what Habakkuk does is he becomes actually really aggressive and goes towards God and starts to just share all of his pain with God and puts it out there. And so part of what I want you to learn this morning is just to think about how to pray through your pain. If I were to put the sermon in in a sentence, it's this, that at the end of your pain is a promise that injustice will one day end. That at the end of your pain, there's a promise that the injustice of this world will one day end. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come before you in this moment of collective reconsideration, and we pray that the voice of Habakkuk, which is so unique and so powerful uh, in this text, would 
pierce our hearts, Lord. Pierce through our, our angst about your inactivity in the world. Pierce through our frustration about our sense of uh, abandonment that we sometimes have towards you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's really just two sections in the passage, 1 to 4 and then 5 to 11. 1 to 4, just call it the prophet and his pain, and then 5 to 11 is the promise. And my, if I'm just going to tell you my application right at the beginning for verses 1 to 5 is, is what I've already said, is, which is to learn to pay, pray through the pain that you endure in this world. Uh, another way to say it is learn to lament. This is this, The whole book is actually a kind of lament where Habakkuk comes before God and he <laughs> points out to God, these are the problems with the way that you're doing your job, which sounds a little bold, but that's actually what he's doing. What he's doing is he's saying, God, your word says that you're supposed to be like this, but when I look at the world, I don't see you acting in the world in that way. So lament is a kind of prayer for many of us that, is, that we're not really used to. But it involves turning our sense of isolation into words towards God and expressing them in a kind of raw way towards him. Americans are... We're probably more used to, like, prayer sometimes seems to me like you're at, like, this little tea party and there's all these porcelain dolls and you pick up your tea with your finger like this, you know. But his prayer is more like a, a football game or a soccer game where you're yelling at the ref, like, how could you miss that call? What's the matter with you? Didn't you see that over there? That's sort of the tone of Habakkuk's prayer here. We actually don't know very much about Habakkuk. We don't know his family history. We don't know uh, where his hometown was. In that first sentence there, verse 1, we learn a little bit about the prophet. It says, uh, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, and the word oracle there could actually be translated burden. It's Massah. And uh, so this is Habakkuk bringing his burden before God which is what lament does. It brings our concerns before God. And then it says also it's the oracle that the prophet saw. The book's very visual, actually. Chapter 3 is entirely a, what they call a theophany, like a vision of God coming. But um, in several places, like in chapter 2, he says he's going to write down the vision. And even his language here. He uses the language accusing God, saying, look, I'm seeing things. Are you not seeing the same things? And in chapter 1, verse 5, God turns around and says, you think you're seeing things? Let me show you some things. So it's a very visual book, which is why it says uh, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Um, it took, this, this is all uh, taking place around, it's in the 7th century B.C., so most likely between 609 and 605 B.C. is when Habakkuk wrote. And we'll get a little bit more into the kind of historical context in a moment. If you think about somebody that's going through pain, and maybe you've gone through a very challenging season in your life, there's kind of two questions that come to mind when suffering comes. When there's a notification that you've lost your job, say, or that someone 
is breaking up with you, say, or that cancer is the diagnosis? There's two questions that we tend to, to ask when you're going through like a season of hardship. Question one is how long is this gonna last? And the other one is why? Those are two very common questions. How long? And that's Habakkuk's question here. He really has two questions for God, and one of them is how long, and the other one is why. And you can see that very simply in verse 2 and verse 3. Here's what he says. How long, O Lord, should I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you for violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Do you see that? How long, how long, why, and why? In reality, the the depth of these questions that are being asked here are about how a good God can allow such perversion and unrighteousness and wickedness to continue in the world today. You heard that a little bit in the prayer that Jesse prayed just a moment ago. Of Lord, we look at these things that are happening in our city. Take any place in the world. Take Afghanistan and what's happened there over the last 20 years. Take some of the neighborhoods of the city of Chicago. Take genocide that happened in Rwanda or in Kosovo. And the question of a suffering people is, how long do we have to endure this, oh God? The context here most likely is, this is in Judah, and the, the suffering that's happening or the violence that's happening is within the Jewish people themselves. So it's not like somebody else at the moment when he's crying out is coming in from the outside and persecuting them. He's speaking of the wickedness in Judah itself. Most likely the... Uh, the person who's the king at, the, in this, at this time is Jehoiakim, who uh, one of the commenters describes as a merciless and ruthless king, uh, slaughtering different people. So that's, what, that's the context of, of Habakkuk's prayer. And in one sense, you could think of it this way, that he accuses God of being unseeing, unacting, and unhearing. <laughs> He says, look, I can see. Why don't you see? Why don't you deliver? And why don't you hear the prayers that I am praying to you? It's like God has become an absentee landlord for Habakkuk. And he's like, God, the pipes are bursting down here. God, it's <laughs> the oven doesn't work in our country, so to speak, anymore. How come you won't do anything? And the problem with an absentee landlord is it doesn't matter how many times that you call them, they don't respond. I don't know if you've ever gotten caught in one of those like telephone circles when you dial customer service, you know, and they're like, all you need to do is, I'm, I'm an a automated uh, assistant. Please describe your problem in one sentence and then... My package was, was misdelivered. Oh, you'd like to deliver a package? Press number two. You know, and then you get caught in like this thing and you can't get out of it. That's Habakkuk is feeling that way. He's like, God, I pressed number two and nothing happened. Like you're not listening to me. 
he's feeling the absence of God. Yeah, we had an opossum at our house the other day. Those beautiful animals, maybe you've seen an opossum before. My wife and I were sitting outside by a wood pile kind of on the side of our yard, and our dog started sniffing around, you know. And we had this tarp over the wood pile, and I was wondering why our dog Sawyer was like sniffing around. So I pulled back the tarp, and here's like this little snout of this opossum. So then it's like, okay, what do you do if you have an opossum in your yard? And I thought, oh, of course, you just call 311. So I called 311 because it's not an emergency. And they actually said, oh, we can come right away and deliver it because this is a high priority for us, and it's actually an emergency for us. I thought, that's awesome. And they said someone will be right there. Some people are laughing because they know how the city of Chicago works. So they said somebody will be there very shortly. So then no one was there. Um, like within six hours, then within eight hours, I'm like checking online. I called back a couple of times. They said, yes, you're next in the queue, you know, things like that. And then the next day, after like 36 hours, I finally got a hold of someone. And, oh, I know that I got a call from the uh, wildlife and like pest removal department. And they said, hey, I heard you have an injured squirrel in your yard. <laughs> I said, no, I have not an injured squirrel, but I have a, a possum, and he's like, he's fine, but I don't really want him in my yard. And they're like, oh, we don't do anything with stuff like that. I'm like, thank you very much. All, right. All that to say is, that's Habakkuk feels like, man, I've got this bureaucracy between me and you. And you say all of these things about how you're a just God and a good God in the scriptures, but when I look at it, I don't actually see it. And in fact, look at what he says he sees. He sees violence, verse 2. He sees iniquity. He sees wrong. He sees destruction. He sees violence. He sees strife. He sees contention. Like, he's got a lot on his list. And these are all words that have to do with the brokenness of the world. The word violence there is Hamas, which is now uses the name of Palestinian organization, but it means, in this context, it means violence. And there's a progression in verses two through four, because what happens is he says he cries for help and God is not hearing. He says that God is not acting, God is not delivering. And he says, what he's really concerned about though is verse four, look at what verse four says. The law is paralyzed. Isn't that interesting imagery? That's what it feels like sometimes in Chicago. Like, the law just gets stuck and doesn't go anywhere. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. One of the most divisive topics of the last 15 months actually has been the topic of justice in our country. And one of the reasons why it's been so divisive is because we tend to look at the concept of justice as Christians first, politically or economically, and not theologically or biblically. And so we get divided because we start to think about how does this work out politically, how does it work out economically. But when you look back at the Old Testament scriptures, it's very clear that God is a God who has a heart for justice. And the reason why Habakkuk is, quote-unquote, suing God 
is because the world seems so unjust, and he knows that God is a God of justice. I'm just going to say a word about a couple of these words here that are important. The word, I'm, I'm going to give you a Hebrew word so that you can think more biblically about what justice is. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of them. So when it says that the law is paralyzed, it's the word Torah. And when you think of the Torah, it technically means the first five books of the Old Testament. And what he's saying is that it seems like everything you've written in your law is paralyzed. It's not working. The next word there for justice is the word mishpat. If you're taking notes, write down, just try to sound it out, okay? M-I-S-H-P-A-T. Mishpat, which has to do with the collection of laws that a, a country passes. The idea has to do with the way that the laws are um, enacted and the ways that the laws are um, moved forward. The next word there is um, where it says righteous. That word is, it's like tzaddik, T-Z-A-D-I-Q. And it has more to do with the way that a person conducts themselves in the world. If you think about it, one is more righteousness, and even in English language, righteousness is a little more individual. It's how I conduct myself in the world with honor and generosity to others who are around me. Whereas mishpat has a, is a little more corporate. It's how our laws govern ourselves. And very often in the scripture, those two phrases, justice and righteousness, are linked together. And they're often linked together in the context to say that somebody is oppressing us in the world. Much of the biblical uh, writers are written, sorry, much of the biblical texts are written, especially in the Old Testament, from marginalized peoples who are being persecuted in some way. Now today, because um, of the way our country has divided and because of suspicion about probably rightful suspicion about Marxism creeping into our world. A lot of times what happens today is anytime somebody uses the word oppressed or oppressor, other people think, oh no, they're being Marxist. One way to think of this, though, is that Marxism is a Christian heresy that has taken a few concepts in the scripture that include oppression and the oppressed, and distorted them into big word and eschatological vision that says one day the uh, proletariat will rise up against the bourgeois. And so now everything is seen through class struggle. Anyway, that's a little bit of an aside, but what I want to say to you is that today we're looking at some language that is clearly biblical that has been co-opted both by the left and the right. And God is concerned both about justice and righteousness, and they're very clear here in the text. I want to give you one little nuance on the concept of justice, though, um, just for a moment, and that is that justice in the Old Testament often means not just a collection of laws, but it also means compassion for those who are weak. And there's a triad in the Old Testament, which is the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. 
And if you look up in a Bible dictionary the word justice, it will often occur with the, that little triad, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. And one way to think of, uh, of this idea of justice is that it's not the economic concept of equal outcomes or equal opportunities even, but what it really is, is it's a concept that says um, our hearts are partial but God is impartial, therefore we should have concern for those who are overlooked. One easy way to think of it is this, that um, we had five kids growing up and Josh was the youngest and uh, Mike is 10 years older than him. I pay attention to both of them at the swimming pool in different ways. When Mike is 13, he can do whatever he wants when the youngest is three or the next one is five, there's a different kind of care. And what God does, because he knows how partial we are, is he has a special kind of care for the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner in the scriptures. That's the idea of justice and righteousness and the law here in the scriptures. One last thing I'll just say on, on this idea of praying through pain. Um, one way to think about praying through pain is that it is actually taking the promises of God and showing them to God and showing how he doesn't live up to them. There's a great uh, preacher in England whose name was Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he calls this idea suing God. What, what uh, Habakkuk is doing here is suing God, saying, here's what he says. He says, he quotes a guy named Thomas Goodwin. He says, sue him for it, sue him. Don't leave him alone. Pester him, as it were, with his own promise. Tell him what he has said he is going to do. Quote the scripture to him. You, and you know, God delights to hear us doing it, as a father likes to see this element in his own child. The child may be slightly impertinent, but it doesn't matter. The father likes it in spite of that. What he's saying is, be bold in your prayers. Take the promises of God and show them to the Lord in your prayer. So, just want to say to you, pray through your pain. And uh, when it seems like God is absent, frustratingly absent, maybe he's not actually absent. Maybe you're just not looking in the right places, which is what the next section says, which is sort of be surprised, be astounded. If the first section has to do with the absence of God, the second one has to do with the astounding actions of God. The first one has to do with praying through the pain. This one has to do with the promise that is to come, which is actually a highly um, surprising promise. Here's what it says in verse chapter 1, verse 5. It says, look among the nations and see. What's interesting is there's a change of voice here because Habakkuk is speaking personally or he's speaking as a single individual. When we get to verse 5, and this is the hard thing about being a northerner is we don't say y'all, but that's what Habakkuk uh, is told here. He's like, God says to Habakkuk, he says, he's, he doesn't just say, look Habakkuk, he says, look nations, look y'all, it's in the plural now, he's telling them all to look. He says, wonder and be astounded. And this is the real takeaway of the text, and I'll just pause here for a moment. You may be in a season of waiting upon God where you're waiting for him to do something and you keep crying out to him over and over and over. 
What happens to Habakkuk here is God says to him that the waiting will be replaced by wonder. That there's a day, I put it this way earlier, that there's a promise at the end of the pain and the promises that God is going to do away with all injustice. And that's essentially what happens in this next little section is God says, let me tell you, I am doing a work. We think God is inactive. He says, no, 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 I'm active. You just don't see where I'm working. Another way to think of this is you can't put God in a box. We might think we know exactly how he should be working, but he says, no, 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 no. I have a way of working that is going to shock you and surprise you. This, this section actually here is quoted by Paul in Acts 13, and he uses it in a sermon just to say, essentially, wake up. You think God's not working in the world, but wake up because he is working. And he, uses, he comes right to Jesus. He says he's working through forgiveness in the world in an active way. Acts 13, 41, he says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. What he says now in this text, beginning in verse 6, is that he's going to use, and this is what's really confusing, and you have to come back next week to understand it fully, but he says he's going to use a wicked people to stop wickedness. In verse 12, Habakkuk's like, like what good is that? <laughs> he chooses an instrument to eliminate the wickedness or punish the wickedness that is happening in Judah. And the instrument he chooses is more wicked than the people in Judah. And that's why he says, wonder and be astounded. This isn't the end of the book or the dialogue, but he describes them then in great detail. Listen to the character of this people. They're bitter, hasty, dreaded, fearsome, self-oriented. Verse 6, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. This is a prediction of what was going to come in Israel's history in 597. So if this is around 609 or 605 B.C., it's the idea that a great exile is coming, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in 597 and destroy Jerusalem, and that's what it's a picture of. And the pictures of horses and eagles and wind sweeping in are a picture of the way that the army is going to come. They're totally unjust. Listen, look at verse 7. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. This is the tendency of, of, of justice today. In the boardroom and in the neighborhoods and gangs of Chicago, justice is defined by what I think is right rather than what God thinks is right. Look at the descriptions there of horses, eagles, wolves, lepers. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. All of their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. There's this promise in Genesis that says God's people are going to be like this, the sand of the seashore. Have you ever seen somebody in Florida or in the southern part of California with a bucket, you know, just scooping up sand and making a sand castle? That's how the Israelites are going to feel, just like, Somebody scooping them up, dumping them out, 
laughing. That's how he describes them. This is what's terrifying about a genocide is that people become so callous they actually laugh about it. That's what he's predicting in verse 10. The kings scoff, the rulers laugh. There's no fortification can stop them. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up the earth and they take it and then they sweep like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This That uh, great... Uh, poem by Carl Sandburg that pictures Chicago kind of like this, like a laughing, strapping young man. He says, they tell me you're wicked and I believe them, for I've seen your painted women under the gas lamps luring the farm boys. They tell me that you're crooked and I answer, yes, it's true, I've seen the gunmen kill and go free again. Chicago's always been a violent city. They tell me you're brutal, and my reply is, yes, I've seen it on the faces of women and children with the marks of wanton hunger. Come show me another city with lifted head singing so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning. He says, I give them back the sneer and say to them, this is my city. What Habakkuk's problem is, is wickedness is coursing through Judah, and he doesn't understand how this could possibly be. And what God says essentially is, I have a plan, and I am working the plan. And God's works are beyond belief. They can't, you can't contain in your mind all that God is actually doing in the world. And so I'll just say this, pray the absence of God, but prepare for the astounding works of God. Prepare for a kind of awe of God. God is actually not unseeing, unacting, unhearing. In fact, he works in astounding ways. God does care about the violence and the evil and the injustice of the world. And God's going to bring an end to the violence and the evil and the injustice of the world. But he'll do it in surprising ways. Part of what I wanted to say to you all and to myself is stop ghosting God. That's kind of what what Habakkuk is doing here is he's like, okay, I'm going to come straight to you. Instead of blowing you off in my pain, instead of ignoring you in my pain, because I think you've ghosted me, God, I'm going to come at you. Particularly those of you who feel God's absence, I want to ask you to keep waiting for the awe and for his astounding ways to be revealed to you. There's a beautiful way in which This all pictures the cross because as we see destruction all around us, the cross is a way in which Jesus was destroyed to create a new people who walk in his ways. We see that the law is paralyzed, but the one who fulfilled the law was paralyzed on the cross immobilized with pierced hands and a pierced side 
as a sign that he would fulfill the law and put the law in our hearts. The violence of the world was met by a nonviolent Messiah who was creating a nonviolent community. He was destroyed by the violence of Pilate and Rome, uh, Pilate and the Romans and the Jewish leaders. But he now has committed himself to a way of nonviolence. There's an author whose name is Nicholas Walterstorff who in 1987 he wrote a book called A Lament for a Son, and he wrote it as a way to pray through his pain. His son had died in a mountain climbing accident in about 1985, and he would go through crowds sometimes, and he'd think, there's my son Eric, and it wasn't Eric. Or he'd find himself waiting up at night, waiting for Eric to come home. And there's just one little um, statement that he has in his book that I want to close with, which is this. God doesn't always explain our suffering, but he enters into our suffering. He puts it this way. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares in it. So in the midst of the frustrating absence of God or the frustrating inactivity of God, what I encourage you to do is pray through your pain and prepare for the promise that he will indeed put all injustice to an end as he has promised through the cross. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're prepared for the raw prayers of Habakkuk, that his strength in crying out to you against the violence does not surprise you. As a community, Lord, we pray that you would help us to embody this intensity of prayer of Habakkuk when we see such corruption in the world that you would cause it to break our hearts, but that you would help us also to pray through our angst and our anxiety and our pain and then to rest in you knowing that you are doing something astounding in our world, even if we cannot see it yet. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.